how how is our usual intro going to work? I know that I'm going to keep this part in the edit right now. Me trying to think about this. Uh, Littleton Brothers, uh, in your best Will Smith impression, can you give us a good welcome to Earth? Age of Four Beauty. Welcome to Earth. <laughs> I like it. It's understated. Kenny, did you play the movie early? Is that was that the actual Will Smith saying it right there, right? Yeah, that was definitely yeah, he that's the real Will Smith right there saying it. All right, Ken. Ken, you got one? Welcome to Earth. Ooh. Someone nice. just got like it. with it. That was fantastic. Yes. <laughs> You are listening to ID Four Minutes at a Time, the only podcast dedicated to analyzing, scrutinizing, and celebrating the 1996 Roland Emmerich masterpiece, Independence Day, four minutes at a time. I am one of your co-hosts, Kenny Madison, and along with me are... Lulu Nagel! Tyler Bryce. And joining us in the Zoom studio today are two very esteemed guests... Uh, raconteurs of the highest kind. Uh, gentlemen, would you please introduce yourself? I'm Ken Littleton. And I'm Lawrence Littleton. Uh, and usually we just have schmucks on this show, but you guys are a little bit higher caliber. Uh, what is your relationship to this movie? Uh, we created all the schmucks for the film. <laughs> you created every <laughs> single schmuck for this film. That's correct. Oh, sorry. sorry, no, uh, I meant to say visual effect. Visual effect, yeah. You did the visual effects of this movie. Yeah, between between Ken and I. Yeah, go ahead. We did we did about 105 of the 450 something visual effect shots in the film. Wow, that's remarkable. Yes. And when I say did them, I meant we composited the 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 uh, the elements that were filmed and created uh, into a uh, a single image. So what you're saying is that you would definitely have been responsible for the, some of the shots in minutes 44 through 48 of Independence Day. We uh, helped to blow a lot of things up. <laughs> yeah. Things are going to blow yeah. up. Anyway. Uh, that's correct. This four minutes starts with Tiffany, Jasmine's friend, at a party and ends with a big orange ring of fire, Lulu. Ooh. Now, Kenny, I believe that Lulu had some predictions last week about what would happen this week. Could you <laughs> remind us of those? Uh, absolutely. Littleton Brothers, please be on the lookout for these predictions as we watch the four minutes coming up. Uh, Lulu's predictions. Two light, bright helicopters went up, but one is going to go down. Tiffany is on top of the tower and she's going to get annihilated. <laughs> uh, Jasmine will show up at the base. And uh, Captain Hiller will have to deal with her and get into the fighter jets. Captain Hiller, that's that's Will Smith. Oh, okay. okay. Harry Connick Jr. is going to be sexy and sing a song about how to live your last moment. And this is Lulu's final prediction. Uh, I apologize. I'm going to blow it out. Where is Quaid? Where? (laughs) He hasn't been there in the last several segments. Uh, just like Randy Quaid in real life, potentially. Right. Uh, is there anything else that we need to talk about before we actually watch the minutes 44 through 48 together? I, I'd just like to mirror what Kenny was saying about how honored we are that you guys took the time to come in and be with us this morning. Thank you so much. You literally could have been doing anything else. Anything. Anything. Like anything. Well, it's, yeah. a, it's a pandemic, so we don't have much to do. <laughs> See, there's right. one of those silver linings people talk about with this pandemic. 
Absolutely. Uh, and folks, because you're not watching this, uh, Lawrence is getting attacked by a puppy uh, periodically during <laughs> during the shoot. So if he suddenly disappears, we're going to assume that it's puppy related. He's wearing a jester hat and the puppy leaps up and tries to chew the balls off the ends of the points of the jester hat. <laughs> and then he's like, ah, get off my neck. Uh, speaking of getting attacked, let's attack this next four minutes of Independence Day, shall we? Let's do it. Man, I love my segues. <laughs> it's all gone <sighs> it's all gone and then after this four minutes the movie just ends it's done after this Lulu credits world ends done pro credit I'm just devastated it's the highest grossing 50 minute movie that's ever happened <laughs> Lulu what did you think I thought they would strike once and maybe hit an iconic sort of landmark didn't realize it would be so widespread and so many landmarks. And oh, Fart, Feinstein, Fart, Feinstein, what's his name? Fartstein? I think that's what you were yeah. about to say is Fartstein. Fartstein no. is. Yeah, Harvey Fartstein. Dead. He's got to be dead. I'm so sad he's dead. In each one of the locations, they actually gave us a character that they interacted with. Uh, that we watched die. We watched uh, Harvey Firestein's character, and then we, of course, watched uh, Tiffany uh, on top of the building in L.A. And then in uh, in Washington, uh, there was the aide who ushered the president from place to place, who we watched get on a helicopter. And he's actually a named character, although I can't remember the name right now. Uh, but we watched him die, too. So they actually gave us named character decks in all of those places in Four minutes of film. Fantastic. I might add, there's a, there's a cameo in there uh, where the office is being destroyed and the gentleman you see in the, the office being blown away, that's Volker Ingo, one of the co- Volker Ingle, yes, who was one of the co-supervisors for the visual effects on the film. Oh, fantastic. I read his name before we started, and my last name is <laughs> So when I saw Volker, I was like, look at that. Lula, we're going to have to bleep that. Shoot, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you may have to bleep this too. Volker said to me, I was working on one of the shots and uh, I was kind of complaining about the quality of the element. And he said, you know what? Rolls downhill and you're at the bottom of the hill. <gasps> oh, harsh. But, but, to, but to be fair, they, they, they did an amazing job with they a did lot an of the elements. Job. Yeah. I mean, those are all filmed elements. There's very little CG right, in right. there. The only right. CG in that whole sequence really is the the beam forming on the bottom of the ships. Otherwise, everything else in, the, in those, those sequences are actually mm-hmm. practical explosion effects and miniature models. I, I mean, one right. of the things that I love so much about this movie is that it's right on the intersection of CG taking over the entire landscape. So there's so much wonderful, lovely model work, and it's all being kind of expanded with CG. So it's got a, mm-hmm. it's got a real tactile feel to it and it's beautiful scale. A lot of the explosions in the sequence were created by a gentleman named Joe Viscosal, who unfortunately passed in 2014, but he was a master of pyrotechnics master. and just yeah. loved uh, a great character, really, really funny, but loved blowing stuff up. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, he's been a lot, his work is in a lot of films that you've seen. Anything blowing up was probably Joe Viscosal. 
like Die Hard? Uh, I believe so. You know, I, oh I, I, he has such a long credit list. Uh, yeah. If it blew up and if it was a, particularly if it was a building, it was Joe Viscosal. Okay, so I have a question. So we saw the Empire State Building, like when, when you talked about models and using real pyrotechnics to blow it up, how big are these models? They're pretty big. They're, they're roughly uh, like the Empire State Building was about three feet tall. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. So that's significant because that's a, a lot of detail. The White House is even larger. Yeah, the White House was about six feet. Oh, my goodness. Six feet, six feet tall? Six feet wide. Sorry, six feet wide. So probably about four feet tall. I remember seeing behind the scenes video of how they did the practical uh, White House explosion at the time. And, you know, this is 1996. This is before there's Internet leaked parts of it. It was just um, seeing on TV these little snippets about the behind the scenes work and the model makers working on it and watching the explosion and then seeing how it was composited into this giant picture i mean the the round flame that's working its way out uh in is such an amazing shot as it's just rolling through and destroying everything it's amazingly well done we, we nicknamed, nicknamed that the the pizza shot because it looked like a, a huge pizza right out of the oven uh and uh that was made by, of about oh, i'd say at least uh two dozen elements uh, artwork in the middle, uh, burning lots of little burning fires, and the leading edge uh, is all comped in together to make it into a big round circle, as well as the ship above it and the spaceship ending its beam. You're my people because you call me, I've been calling it an Oreo cookie or a flower disc, and I'm really happy to hear it looks like a pizza coming out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> I am justified and legitimate now. Yeah, if the official people were actually actively calling it foodstuffs, I think we feel secure enough in our abilities to be able to refer to it as other foodstuffs as well. There's been a weird, a, a tiny motif of dolphins in the film. Yes. Starting with Jasmine's earrings were little dolphins. And then the background of, um, it was Jeff Goldblum's computer had dolphins on it. And there was, wasn't there a third? It was a third. Jasmine's engagement ring. Has dolphins. That's got dolphins. Yeah. And so when the big flower disc opened up with the bright blue beam, I really wanted dolphins to swim out, but it didn't happen. <laughs> but I, I've researched if that was intentional or not. And there's only one tiny subreddit, you know, going on about it. But um, is there anything to the dolphins? Did you ever even notice? No. No. I, Somebody I, made some choices. That was either that's that's a uh, that was. Uh, Probably either either Roland or Dean Devlin, one of those who was putting an inside joke in there, but uh, we never heard about it. <gasps> yeah, but in terms of the, the particle beam that comes down and strikes all the buildings, what Roland called that is he called it the whoosh and the hammer. Whoosh and the hammer. The whoosh and then the hammer. What, why? Yes. <laughs> why? Why did he call it the whoosh and the hammer? Because it's a sound it makes when it why? comes out. Whoosh, and then it the goes hammer. Sound, Lulu. Uh, why are you asking? What are you asking well, for? Why? Why? What? Why is it designed that way as opposed to like I don't know, just one giant, like a squeaker, squeaker, squeaker? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Roland was was very descriptive whenever he would talk about the the visual effects, particularly because you know this is something you you he he didn't have a lot of uh, artistic drawings or storyboards to go by. 
So when he would come in and sit with us and talk to us about what uh, he wanted to see out of the visual effects, uh, uh, he would always have very descriptive uh, names uh, for how he wanted the shots to look. And particularly, he, he wanted the, the flame, the rolling flame front of all the explosions to be very, very dirty. And when they were filmed, they were basically gas explosions. And so they were fairly clean. And so we had to add all sorts of debris, uh, many, many filmed elements of debris of cars, of building parts that they just used. Uh, they filmed by puffing air behind debris at the camera uh, in slow and mm. doing it in high speed. So it would be in slow motion. And we added a lot of those elements. And every time he would come and see a, uh, the same shot, he would go, no more. He would more, 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 <laughs> constantly wanting more darker, more destruction. And uh, it, it actually looks that way on film, that there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm. And he, he wanted a very contrasty uh, image. So he, he constantly was saying, make it darker, make it darker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dirtier, <but>. darker. <laughs> I mean, considering where Roland Emmerich's oeuvre goes later, the amount of carnage here, that definitely sets him up for the rest of his destructive career, for sure. How are the car? How did you flip the cars over and over and over? The cars are actually real life-size cars that they filmed on a set oh my uh, over a blue screen. And it's got a, uh, basically a, a, a cannon below it, and it just flips the cars over uh, one after another. And these are real life-size cars that were, they were shooting uh, as elements for us. And we had, oh, I would say uh, at least hundreds of different uh, car-flipping elements. I mean, they must have trashed thousands of cars during the oh film. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they, did, they didn't really flip a real fire truck, though. No, okay. the fire truck was a toy <laughs> fire truck. Unbelievable. We draw the line there. Yeah, I, I feel so cheated there. now. that's crazy because it's hard to control where your flipped car is going to go as far as i guess it it was clear of people but there there are actually some some live action shots with cars flipping of course the the people are Mm -hmm. running on the side of the street and then the cars are flipping in the middle and of course nobody's inside the car so you but it's they're quick shots so you don't really notice uh so we definitely wanted you to come on the podcast and Whenever I started talking with y'all, you said, I, I think they would probably want to do the White House shot because that's that's the shot. And not only that, but there there's a making of documentary with Lawrence specifically working on the White House shot, the iconic shot of the entire movie. The thing that's on the posters, on the video box. I talk about that, I guess. Uh, Did you guys know just how important that shot was going to be to literally everything? Not at the time. We we really didn't have any idea of how popular the movie would be or how how fans would react to it like they have. We were joking with the with the White House shot, uh, you know, comping in uh, who's the cat Uh, with the president's cat at the time. Socks, socks yeah. cat actually comping socks flying out, but oh, uh, of course he didn't do that. My gosh, that would have been incredible. <laughs> <laughs> we did have a sense of how important that shot was when uh, Lawrence did the major compositing on that shot. But we were it was under a, a quite a tight deadline because they wanted to get that shot in particular in front of the oh gosh I can't remember the 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 show they were trying to uh, prep for it as the, as a PR release, but. Um, uh, Lawrence did a very uh, quick and dirty comp on that uh, initially on 
uh, which looked really nice, uh, didn't have the helicopter exploding in the front, but they showed that one uh, to some big conference. I don't know if it was Comic-Con or whatever, whatever con was going on at, at that time in, you know, 1996, 90, whatever it was. And uh, uh, it just blew people away. Uh, the, the PR people were, were totally uh, free, you know, psyched about it. They, it kind of gave them the idea that the film was going to do really well when they got such huge audience response uh, about the White House exploding and, uh, and how cool it looked. It's also very upsetting. What's, I, I can't think of a single reason why it would be upsetting to watch the White House explode, Lulu. Well, we're watching, we just started watching Designated Survivor uh, with Kiefer Sutherland on Netflix right now. It was ABC originally, but they blew up the Capitol. And that was with the benefit of CGI and all of the, the modern tools. But that was upsetting. But um, this is the White House. Yeah. Well, this was pre 9-11. So it, yes. it you know, it, at that yeah. point, it was it, it wasn't scary. And right. now when you blow up uh, a, a Washington monument, it, it I think people kind of have uh, dread. And, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about is we've been leading up to here is how they play so much with the iconography and and in so many of the movies uh, of these directors and producers um they go out of their way to to destroy things uh that are iconic that are things that make people go i know that and recognize it because they're they're things that are a part of our imagination and not just a part of our reality right so like blowing up the empire state building uh blowing up uh, the the White House, uh, these are, I mean, this was a big disaster movie thing in the middle of what was supposed to be a sci-fi adventure. And and to put those things in the middle of this film, uh, groundbreaking. And it was, yeah, I, I think that it's just an amazing choice of how it was to get a rise out of audiences. And it's it's wild that all of this American iconography is coming from a German director as well like that's the wild thing i'm sure if roland had the budget he would have liked to have blown up the the uh, eiffel tower the uh in, in all the capital cities because that's what's actually in the film there are many many mother uh, many many uh, uh of these destroyer ships over all the capitals of the world destroying all of the iconic uh places and so you know of course the film uh essentially was supposed to be an american release so it was important to make sure to destroy america and, uh, you know, when it went to international, uh, international audiences enjoyed the blowing up of America just as much as everybody else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whenever Roland Emmerich went back, he blew up Europe. Spoiler alert for Independence Day Resurgence, Lulu, a film that I'm, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to see. When I'm finally released. Yes, I will see it. Well, he particularly likes blowing up America. I mean, uh, in, in 2012, he destroyed... Uh, most of America uh, and uh, all his films tend to be destroying America. Hmm. It's great. I'm sure he's not exercising any sort of demons right there. I did. I was very much struck by the, when the buildings, you know, the fire came from, we were the shot inside the building. The fire came from outside into the building to destroy uh, Volker. (laughs) And it just, that like felt very disturbing because if you had been inside, perhaps that's how it might be. And it just, you know, it was, it was very visceral. 
I mean, yeah, the, there's there's so much build up to it and the emphasis of mm-hmm. making sure that you have a facial reaction that is going. So there is some sort of emotional context and how to feel about all of this carnage, which seems silly, yes. but also just one of the things that seems to be forgotten is you have to have people reacting to things. Well, at least one of the things that's been forgotten in recent blockbusters is that you have to make sure that there's some sort of emotional context, literally just grabbing the audience and kind of telling them that we should feel awestruck by this, Uh, which is one of the reasons that I love this movie. It's not unsubtle at all and tells me exactly how to feel. And I also just love being manipulated by movies and just people in general. Just ask any of my exes. So that's a that's a phenomenon called social proof and communication research, where we look to others to know how to feel. But they did these wild experiments where you would go in, like, let's say me and Ken and Lawrence were in the experiment and Tyler was running the experiment. So Tyler uh, would come in and we'd all three sit down. And of course, the Littleton brothers are in on it. And Tyler would draw three lines on a board, little line, medium line, long line, A, B and C. And he'd say, Lawrence, which one's the longest line? And he'd say, B. And I'd be looking like, no, no, it's C. It's not B, it's C. And then he'd say, Ken, what about you? Which one's the longest line? Definitely B. And at this point, I'm like, well, I must be wrong. I must be seeing this differently. I'm going to take my cues from the other two people, social proof. And I'm when they ask me, more often than not, I would say B, that the subject would agree with the people previous, right? I think that's what's happening politically right now. <laughs> That's happened very much politically. It's also how the shopping cart gained popularity on wheels, which I could tell you that story another time. Wait, what? Okay, so the shopping cart. Before the wheeled one, they had baskets that they would hang on their arms. And women would shop, mostly women at that time. And when their basket got full or too heavy, they quit buying. If you've ever done that in the store, like, I'm going to get a couple things. And then you're like, oh, you know, at the end. So this grocery store owner was saying... To himself, you know, there's got to be a better way. I'm going to take this basket and put it on wheels so women can push it. And he put them all out with a big sign, try our new basket on wheels. And the women walked in and took a look at it and then went over to their hand basket and went into the store. And he was like, Gee. so then the second time. I'm sorry, what was that? Gee. Okay, just so checking. <laughs> so the you're, second you're, time. Uh, you're, you're taking a cue from Roland Emmerich. Very well done. and the basket hammer and the hammer we need a key and the push anyway he had someone there saying this is how you use it would you like to try one of our basket on wheels i'll show you how to use it and the women were like no thank you because they looked around at the other women and they were all still carrying their hand baskets third time he said i'm gonna hire neighborhood women to walk around the store and push the baskets and put food into it. And so they did. And the other women saw them doing it and said, how do you like that? Well, I do like it. It's very much, oh, well, I guess I'll do it too. I guess particularly if you had children, if you had children and then the basket cart had a child seat, boom, yes. that was a yes. winner right there. Yes. Hopefully. I think that was an add on later. <laughs> mm. Yes. Anyway, social proof. So I like the fact that we are learning how to react to all of this by the people we've grown to love in 44 minutes. <laughs> Um, speaking of, we did have some Jeff Goldblum in this. Uh, he, of course, um, we watch him getting on Air Force One after getting on Marine One, right? We watch him get on Marine One, which is the helicopter. Uh, and then we watch them get on Air Force One. We, we, I don't know if you guys know this or not, have, have what's called the JeffCon scale, uh, where we rate the sexiness of Jeff Goldblum in every four-minute chunk. 
Uh, Jeff Goldblum, of course, gets to say checkmate in this. So, uh, Lulu, what, where, where would you place Jeff Goldblum on our on our Jeff Con scale today? Well, he was off the scale in a bad way last time. This time he's creeping back up. It's like we're we're having pillow talk, and he has quiet voice where he just says check me, check 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 me. <laughs> so he's climbing climbing back, and he's probably just Jeffcon five. That's okay. The lowest of the Jeffcon scale, if he's on the scale. Certainly. So the important question: How do we get in him in this scene to be Jeffcon one? Well, he was well, right, number one. Oh, tell me, Ken, if you have an opinion, I'd like to hear. Yeah, is there some compositing work that could happen that we could get him to Jeffcon One? Well, I think Jeffcon One is more uh, him getting eaten eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex, or uh, you know, life finds a way. Uh, this is more. Yeah, I agree with Lulu. This is more around a four or five. Uh, times up is you know, and especially since he spent all that time programming this computer interface with this huge timer clock down mm-hmm. for dramatic. Uh, license. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. He, needed to, oh, I guess he just kind of coded that on his way down to DC. Well, you know, all cable nerds <laughs> know how to code countdown timers. Yeah, of course. Uh, from the satellite feed. So, and, and use use a, a brick phone on the side of their laptop to uh, monitor it. So it's uh, you know technology for the ninety seven. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He's he's really a pioneer in not triangulation so much as linolation linolation where he uses a line to find where people are instead of a triangle um, because he has a little brick that he can find people with. And you also notice that when he's, uh, when he's, when he's drawing the, the, uh, the diagram showing the, the satellites, uh, he actually looks like he draws on the president's desk. The, the, uh, yeah. So I, I think that shouldn't have been done. And on presidential stationery. And look, don't get me started about his perspective of the size of satellites versus giant <laughs> Baptists. The scale was all wrong. The scale was all wrong. Yeah. yeah. Small moons for satellites. Yes, they were small uh, moons. So, so Lulu, what can Goldblum do in this specific four minute chunks that would take him from five to one? Well, you have to unbutton his shirt a little. Okay, great. Let's go on. He should stand up with his laptop in a sort of way so he's, on the he, moving plane. So he's standing up inside of Air Force One <laughs> while also yes. holding on to a laptop. Great. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And then he needs to make a, um, you know, he's, the thing that makes him sexy about this is that he's right. No one believed him. His own father didn't believe him. The president came to believe him eventually and they all got onto the helicopter and plane. He's right now, and I don't want him to brag. I like that he didn't brag, but he needs to now be bold and make another assertion of what's about to happen, what they should do next, and be right about it. Gentlemen, I am, I am wondering, um, are there shots in this movie that you guys are especially proud to have mixed together and, and made uh, happen and presented to the world in this format? Are there, are there things? There's a lot in, in what we just saw that I, is amazing and, uh, and jaw-dropping in terms of what is happening. Uh, are, there, are there other things that, that you guys suggest that we watch for uh, in the rest of the film? And how do you feel about what we just watched? And also let us know if anything's going to spoil after this, this minute, because we don't want to spoil the experience for Lulu, because we have to keep this up until July. 
Well, I think there is a shirtless Jeff Goldblum scene. No, spoilers! Spoilers! Is that the scene where uh, he's surrounded by velociraptors? I'm sorry. Sorry, uh, we shouldn't. Maybe that was a different movie. <laughs> maybe I'm thinking a different movie. Maybe mm. maybe where he turns into a fly. I can't remember now. <laughs> I would be excited to apply the Jeff Collins scale to the fly with Lulu. Well, I, I would say, uh, you know, when we were working on the film, uh, we were working many long, hard hours. I mean, long days, seven days a week. Not nine months. For nine months. Oh, and my gosh. The great thing is we were working with production. I mean, this was a typically in post-production, you don't meet any of the production folks. You don't go on set. You don't see any of that. We just get, here's the material, make it into a, a shot, and it goes into the movie. For Independence Day, we were well involved with the production team uh, as the primary house, well on before uh, even some of the visual effects principal photography was being done. Uh, so we were able to go to the stages, see them. Uh, shooting. Uh, at one point, we even went to the mix down for the uh, symphonic symphonic uh, music. Oh, wow. And uh, I mean, so we, we really had a, a great uh, chance of being involved in the production, which normally we don't in post-production visual effects, uh, even to the point where some at some points at night, um, Trisha Ashford, who was the line producer for the visual effects, they had rented her a motorhome because she was just constantly going from uh, different facilities from the, the, the set to where we were working in Santa Monica to uh, several other visual effects houses that were added on later in the film. And we called that RV the mothership. Mm. And of course, she would come by at around uh, just after dinner time uh, because at the, at the place we were working, uh, POP, Pacific Ocean Post, uh, we actually had a chef who would make us dinner, a, a gourmet chef, and would make us uh, gourmet dinners and everyone mm -hmm. would go in, up in the atrium and eat these delicious dinners mm -hmm. and that's when the mothership would uh, show up and of course you would have dinner with us and so would several of the other uh, coordinators and the production staff uh, and then Trisha would break out the Patron <laughs> and we would all do shots uh, after dinner and by shots I mean like finish a bottle of Patron between a dozen people <laughs> and so we would be quite buzzed and continuing to work on the film into the wee hours of the night uh and we we'd crawl home uh we lived approximately uh six blocks away from the studio at that oh time my gosh. and uh so we would crawl home and then crawl back in the morning uh hung over and do it all over again and look at what you made the night before <laughs> 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 Some of our best compositing work was done while uh, quite buzzed. And and this is actually this is actually uh, in the digital film process. So we would we would output a digital file, and overnight it would get printed to film, and we'd get a film uh, a a daily back the next morning. And so we would we'd actually be able to watch our shots on film the next morning. How? because this is still kind of at the advent of digital technology. How new was that technology? Totally new. The technology yeah. we were using was fairly new. It was, it was for a system from Kodak uh, that was one of the first compositing systems for intermediate film. You know, when that, in that era of compositing, it was 8-bit. You know, the, the compositing was not that good. I mean, if you've ever seen the film Jumanji, you'll know that they did great CG work but their compositing was not the greatest. I mean, this is ILM, a great, you know, 
industrial light magic is known for their visual effects. But at the time, they only had 8-bit compositing technology. Well, the technology we were using from Kodak was called Cineon, and it was this massive uh, $1.2 million refrigerator, a size computer, that we would composite the shots on. And the difference there was that it was known as a uh, logarithmic compositing platform. So we actually had a lot more dynamic range from the film to composite. Uh, so the explosions and the flashes, all the CG, all that information had detail, uh, whereas some of the other lesser compositing systems at the time uh, would just throw that data away and you'd never see it. And it looks kind of flat. It's equivalent nowadays to the difference between SDR, standard dynamic range, and HDR, high dynamic range. We were compositing in high dynamic range on the Cineon system. That's, that's wild. I mean, it holds up so well. This movie still looks so good in a, in a way that so many other things just don't hold up anymore. So what doors did this open for you, having been one of the first to use that kind of technology? Uh, well, we, we ended up uh, working on quite a few films over the years uh, and always using the latest technology. Uh, once the Cineon, unfortunately, Kodak started having problems because they uh, kept their, their money bet on film being used uh, forever. And uh, that was a mistake on, in the, on their mm. part. They, they didn't embrace digital well enough and they, they suffered for it. Yeah. So that system kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, as newer software technology was being developed. And also uh, just developing a system for a $1.2 million computer just didn't make sense. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, PCs started becoming more powerful than these $1.2 million uh, silicon graphics systems. Soon enough, you know, you could buy a PC that had more power, more graphics capability uh, than these huge systems. Wow. And then software developers, uh, we started using a software called Shake and then moved to a, another software called uh, Nuke that was being developed and, uh, and principally used at uh, Digital Domain. And so we've always kept with the best compositing software that we could use throughout our careers. Yeah. And uh, at this point, Nuke is still the, the leading software used in primarily all visual effects house. I have to ask you, I have a friend who worked for Digital Domain for a long time named Daniel Keene. Do you know Daniel? The, the name is familiar, but I don't think I, I, I interacted very much with them. I mean, there, there are a lot of people at DD and, and many, many shows that we've worked at at DD. He went on to Sony and now he's back in Texas. That's why we ended up in Texas. Uh, uh, you know, L.A., just the, the, the production scene there, uh, it, just, it just started getting too crazy. And the films started getting, you know, 1,500, 2,500 shots per film. And, uh, you know, we always prided ourselves trying to work on films that were visual effects, uh, not for visual effects sake, but to tell a story. And uh, for most of our career, we ended up working on movies like that. But now with the Marvel universe, uh, you know, it's, it's really films are made to sell tickets. Uh, people go on a, on, a, on a ride for the show with all the visual effects, come out of the theater and go, wow, that was cool. And then forget about it because the story just wasn't there yeah, I, or acting or I, I kind of want to talk about this change in in the visual effects environment because granted I'm an outsider that's currently just talking on a podcast from my bed so I'm definitely not a professional in the VFX industry but from what I understand uh working 7 days a week for 9 months straight is not uncommon and for a, a, a normal person like me that sounds 
like an incredibly difficult lifestyle, that kind of work schedule is definitely the norm, if not more so working seven days a week, nine months a year on, 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 on the regular. Can you talk about how uh, that industry has changed from 95, 96, whenever y'all were working on this movie to, I guess, whatever you guys made the decision to move to Texas? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, we, we decided uh, to kind of get away from the film industry a little bit uh, in the 2010s, essentially. I started doing a lot more commercial work, uh, principally because it paid better and the pain only lasted a few weeks. Shorter, shorter. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and in the, in the visual effects for film world, uh, the hours got longer. Uh, the pay got less, actually, because there were more and more people going into that field. And there's some, you know, outsourcing. I, and also mm-hmm. outsourcing, uh, you know, shots going to India and China, uh, to Canada, to Australia. Uh, you know, and most of those studios, uh, they were following tax credits. So uh, if there was a tax credit to be had, a studio was being set up there. And of course, they would import uh, people from the visual effects industry in LA uh, to work there and pay them less and work them harder. It just got to the point where, you know, when you have so much of the movie being a visual effect and less uh, concentration on making a story and having really good acting uh, and, and basically a movie for movie's sake rather than a movie for visual effects sake. Uh, it, it kind of loses the, the charm of, of filming. I mean, there, you know, as much as I love Avengers Endgame, whenever you are literally compositing computer graphics onto the main characters, like just composing clothes, literally no extravagant visual effects just literally the clothes that they are wearing and you can't tell the difference there i they're, they're, i feel like that's just a product of filmmaker indecision as opposed and it leads to work environments that are really difficult to maintain and there's so many visual effects houses that are working and it's it's it it, it just leads to so much devaluing of things all across the board because folks were so insanely hard on movies and that we as consumers just kind of inhale them and are just like, cool, that was a fun two hours. What's next? Yeah. Toward the end of our careers, we were pretty much firemen. I mean, they would, they would uh, hire like 50 or 60 younger compositors uh, to do a lot of work and they'd work on it for several months. And then they'd, they'd be getting toward the end of the project and they would call us up and say, can you come and, kind of come help help us finish this movie and so we'd come in there and and many times we would just start over oh my gosh on, on a composite oh. because because it was such a mess trying to untangle someone else's work it was it was almost easier just to start over wow. and, and then we'd have two or three weeks where we'd just be slammed to the wall you know pushing out couple of shots a day that was very taxing that's 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 crazy and i'm for for a workload like that i would imagine that it would somehow be even worse than working seven days a week for nine months a year it's become a major impact on a lot of uh artists now because uh they're having in some cases to to live in you know a, a different city uh, uh being shipped up to a different place to work away from their families to work you know nonstop. And uh, it, it causes a, a great emotional uh, 
toll on on some artists. Uh, you know, I've I've seen families break up, uh, kids being unparented. Uh, oh to some points, there was recently a, an artist, uh, and this is a big problem now in the in the visual effects industry, who committed suicide because it was just too much. Oh my and, gosh! Yeah. Oh. So the industry has it needs to go through some changes, and certainly the pandemic has been a big factor with that. I, because, I just don't know what you mean, Ken. Twenty twenty has been everyone's year. <laughs> well, in terms of the visual effects industry, uh, you know the, the studios, the, the mandate that you couldn't have artists in a in a crowded room, uh, sitting you know three feet away from each other, working on computers for for twelve hours a day. They went to a remote, just like everybody else, uh, remote working. And of course, when you're working on films, there are two factors that the studios are worried about. One is that any part of the film should get onto the internet. So that secrets, especially Disney, and Disney owns pretty much most of it now with the Marvel Universe and, and, and uh, Lucasfilm. So uh, many of the films, and, and Disney is a very uh, radically pri- privacy-oriented uh, when it comes to their films. And they have a mandate that none of their films go on the internet. So all these studios have to figure out a way, or all these visual effects production facilities had to figure out a way that they could have their artists work remotely while not actually having any of the elements or the, the, the images, imagery, uh, go onto the internet. Oh, my god! So VPNs, th- this, this became a, a really big problem. Uh, and Disney's, they've, they've backed away from it. So now... At least uh, artists have uh, these VPN boxes that they put in their home, and so that all the they can actually transfer uh, the the data remote to a remote to the back to the facility uh, using a VPN. But before the pandemic, uh, Disney would not allow that, and working from home or working remotely anywhere uh, was a was really a no no for for most filmmaking. That's crazy! Oh my gosh. Uh, so what you're saying is, uh, there's never been a better time to get into the visual effects industry. Now is the time. <laughs> Go get a job, especially with Disney. Well, it was pretty sad because uh, in the last decade or so, uh, there have been a lot of these uh, pay for companies who, who you know, they say basically give us $120,000 and we'll train you to be a visual effects artist, and we'll, you'll get a job. We'll help you get a job. Well. That's not always the case. And so a lot of these people who are artists end up getting paid, you know, low wages for an artist because they have to, because they have all this debt to pay off. Mm. And so you get a, you now have a, a cadre of young artists who are economically enslaved to the visual oh effects industry gosh. because they need to pay off student debt. The, mm. uh, their training for all this, you know, how to, how do you run Maya and how to, how to run uh, how to create CG. Uh, mm. And it's very expensive. These are private schools. Mm. And so they have no, no other choice except to work long hours for uh, less than rate material. And there's no union for visual effects industry. Mm. Uh, they've tried for the last 20 years. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so whereas the film industry has many other unions for sound, editing, uh, colorists, for uh, you know, actors, for writers, uh, the visual effects industry has suffered because there is no union and uh, it's been incredibly difficult to make a union uh, because basically facilities say, well, if you have a union, we just won't hire you. Mm. So, yeah, Ken and I were very lucky to, to meet up with Bob Coleman of Digital Artists Agency in Los Angeles. And he represented us for quite a few years, 10 to 15 years of our wow. career. 
uh, he was the best guy we could have ever worked with. Oh, he really protected you, huh? Yeah. And he's a great friend as well. Great friend as well. That's a good situation. Did you ever meet any of the stars in the movie? <laughs> uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. We oh, never yeah? met any, Is he in the movie? none of the stars for Independence Day. Uh, oh. Unfortunately, that, that uh, you know, other than the, the production staff. Uh, but uh, in other films that we've worked on, we've, we've met, you know, usually the, yeah, we've met some of the stars on. Wait, on hold on. You've worked on other films besides Independence Day? Uh, one or two, I think one or one or one or one or a hundred. So not that Kenny Madison <laughs> is obsessed by something other than the independence day that rhymes with schmarschmeck. Um, but might there be anything in that franchise that you guys could, uh, could tell? We possibly Kenny may have worked on several schmarschmeck films. Mm-hmm. Wait, yeah, what? You worked on a yeah, Star Trek? I see it. 2009 Star Trek. Uh, uh, I, I, uh, I worked on, uh, well, we worked on, let's see, when Lawrence and I were working <gasps> together in, in LA, uh, I think we worked on first contact uh, in 96. <laughs> yeah. You have to look at our credit list. Uh, and the last one I worked on was with JJ Abrams, uh, which was Star Trek after dark. No, <laughs> in, in the, the darkness. Thank you uh, uh, for, fine, for the names. But yeah, uh, and that was that was that was a lot of fun. I, I just created a lot of uh, falling debris for for many many shots yeah, that uh, right. for that film. Uh, and then uh, and that was great because I was working at J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot. Uh, so I worked on uh, that Star Trek and also on Star Trek uh, Seven, Star Wars Seven. Sorry, uh, and that was uh, that was a lot of fun. J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams runs a really nice shop. The Bad Robot was really cool to work at. Another another gourmet another gourmet chef. <laughs> did he believe in the swoosh and boom no jj was cool jj was was very precise uh one of the coolest guys ever i've ever worked with where where roland was a real character jj is just a really decent guy to work with he tells you exactly what he wants and uh doesn't make any qualms about it uh and when you when you show him what he wants he goes that's perfect and moves on what are what are some highlights from y'all's esteemed and illustrious career? I worked on Fight Club. Ooh. Yeah. They didn't want to have a high profile that the, the, they were using visual effects in the, in the film. Really? Mainly, it was, in the end, it was one of our first projects, at least for me, that we did a full 4K pipeline where it was a fully 4K process. Some of the shows we'd work on, they'd shoot in film and we'd master in, in that uh, 2K. But uh, that was one of the first ones we did a full 4K. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. That seems yeah. outrageously early. Well, yeah. I, I guess you did say that was one of the first, which would also agree with me saying that seems early. I actually think one of the first uh, shows you did on in 4K were the matte paintings for Kundun. Oh, oh Kundun, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You sure. worked on Kundun? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Made many, many flags wave in the, in the wind yeah. for Kundun. Lots of troops and cloning troops and all this dust and stuff coming up, yeah. We also worked on Starship Troopers. Uh, Another German director a, obsessed with American stuff. Speed Racer? <gasps> Y'all worked on Speed Racer? Oh my goodness. That digital domain, yeah. Go Speed Racer. Oh, Go Titanic? Racer. We worked on uh, Titanic. Titanic's Y'all worked on Speed Racer? Yeah. Go Speed Racer, go! <laughs> Wait a minute, there were special effects in Titanic? One and two, I think. Two shots. Okay. And no, two shots. There were a lot. Of, there, there were there were a lot of people who fell off a ship. 
and drop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so uh, what, what made you all want to get into the VFX industry in the first place? We, we, were, we had a, a video production business in Colorado for a couple of years and uh, doing corporate film. Uh, and we'd always been loved with, with filmmaking and animation and, uh, and computers, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so we briefly moved to uh, Southampton, New York, uh, and basically went, tried to figure out if we could get into the film industry there. And people there said, what are you doing in New York? This is where the money is raised for films. You have to go to L.A. to mm-hmm. make films. So we moved to L.A. And uh, we started uh, very, very, uh, I mean, just two guys starving, living in the back of a van for a couple of months and started meeting people that were connected. You know, everybody in LA is connected. And we did some stuff like uh, made an Apple logo rotate on a Macintosh computer. And that (laughs) everybody was thrilled by that because it was the first time a a bit mapped Apple could rotate. So, you know, stuff that we didn't think that was, was that cool. Others yeah. thought were really cool. And so friends, the, some friends saw that and they, they connected to other friends. And uh, the person that got us into uh, filmmaking uh, was a guy named Pete Curran. And Pete has been in the industry for many, many years. Uh, he was one of the original Star Wars uh, visual effects guys. He did uh, the lightsabers in many of the Star Wars. Oh, wow. For Star Wars 1, yeah. And he had a company called Visual Concepts Engineering in Silmar, California. And uh, it was one of those deals where we showed him how to convert to digital because at that point he was still an optical or what we call a wet visual effects guy, meaning that everything was done on film uh, on, using an optical printer. And uh, our deal was he teach us uh, about filmmaking and we teach him, uh, we convert his studio into a digital studio. And so we created a film pr- to digital to film printer for him. And then we made a scanner for him. Oh, wow. Uh, and this is at the time when the technology didn't exist and we were just kludging it together, hacking it together. Uh, but it was effective and it worked and he, and he used it for, for on films. Terminator. 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 Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Drop Dead Fred, the uh, Adams Family. So, uh, yeah, and we, we just uh, went from creating technology where to digitize and print film to actually working at Kodak to make films. Mm. And so we were one of the first users of their Cineon system, which was a high uh, dynamic range compositing system, or what they called an intermediate system, because it, it replaced the, the need for an intermediate film step. Because they used to, in order to make films and visual effects, you would shoot on negative in the camera, and then you would print that to a posit- an interpositive, which was called an intermediate, and then you would print it back to a piece of print film so going through all those generations, of course, made visual effects look very contrasty. So you'll notice anything before the digital age, visual effects tended to be very high contrast, uh, look very kind of cheesy. And uh, once they developed a digital way to do it, it just went from a piece of negative through a digital process back out to an interpositive and was printed. So it reduced a lot of, uh, of analog steps in the process. Yeah, the first sc- the scanner we built, was uh, based on an X-ray medical imager. It was for imaging X-rays, and we converted to uh, to be able to scan the, the negative film. Uh, oh. it would, it would, each scan would take about uh, 15 to 20 minutes to intake to the computer, and then to print it back out per frame. So it was slow. It, so it was slow, but it, it worked. And we were able to have our own 
a process for intaking the negative film, compositing it and outputting it again back to a negative. That's crazy. Wow. That is, you are literally creating the future of the visual effects industry just mm-hmm. with your hands. Yeah, just repurposing uh, equipment made for other purposes. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's <laughs> wild that you were able to make those kinds of, I don't, for lack of a better word, predictions. Uh, spe- speaking of predictions. <laughs> Kenny, are you, are you segueing into something? I think you are. Uh, I, I am segueing. I hope that's okay. I've been dreading this. You've been dreading this? The thing that we do Yeah, because every everything is blown up. I don't know where to go from here. Sure. Uh, but I have, I have a, a sense of something. Uh, so as wonderful as this conversation has been, and I, this has been outstanding. We do have a format to get back onto, gentlemen. Uh, so, Lulu, even though I know that you would mm-hmm. rather just watch these four minutes over and over and over again, we have to make predictions on what's going to happen in the next four minutes. Mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum will stand up inside of the uh, air, inside of the airplane, <laughs> achieving DefCon four or maybe three, and will predict the next move of the Oreo cookie ship. Which will be that, um, I don't know what it will be. They've destroyed all the major cities and capitals, so or the icons within those cities. Uh, will they continue to shoot? I guess they will. And they're all going to convene at Randy Quaid's ranch to form a plan around the campfire. Um, Go on. That is surprisingly prescient. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We haven't seen him in a while. I think he's been making um, pigs in a blanket, getting ready for everyone to come by to have some snacks while they strategize on how to use a low-tech solution to defeat the aliens. Uh, Do you know there was another ending to the film initially? Oh, don't spoil it. No spoilers. No spoilers. spoilers. I'll take them out. Go ahead. I mean, I, I definitely know. Tyler, are you familiar with the alternate ending? I would love to hear the alternate ending. And this was actually filmed, and we did composites on it. Randy Quaid is the hero. He takes a, a, a set of uh, missiles, and he straps them onto his biplane and flies his biplane into the mothership, destroying it. <laughs> I do <laughs> not. Wow. <laughs> Hence the reshoot. What a yeah yeah. Look, this movie is perfect. I genuinely think it's perfect. What a disastrous idea! What an awful, <laughs> abysmal idea! I'm so glad. Did did yeah. the duct tape company not come through with their sponsorship? Is that how it ended up falling apart? Yeah, it was a clearance issue. That's why they couldn't use it. It had a lot to do with Randy Quaid's acting in the biplane. Uh, I don't know if he was drunk or or what drug he was on at the time. But it was over the top, and his acting is always over the top, but this was uh, regrettably over the top. Oh, wow. Lulu, come back! (laughs) And I was not expecting for Voldemort to be in the ending that you're talking about. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, Voldemort. What did I miss? What did I miss? I had to look up prescient, and it means having or showing knowledge of events before they take place. (laughs) Thank you. I wasn't sure if I was being insulted or if I was being complimented. Uh, <laughs> he was being a raconteur. Yes, he For was. a guy who doesn't have much, uh, can't tell time, I can certainly come up with a lot of vocabulary <laughs> words. Your vocabulary is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, Lulu, any other predictions? 
I, we saw the president's wife get on a, a helicopter and then we saw a helicopter get destroyed. So I'm not sure she's alive, but I'm betting she is because if we're going to kill her, it'll probably be later. It wouldn't be right up front because we just killed like minor characters we had met. So I think she's still alive. Mm-hmm. That's all I have. All righty. Uh, anything else that we need to cover before we bring this episode in for a landing? Uh, Bill Pullman. Oh. That's what I've been saying. Bill Pullman. It's Bill Pullman. Pullman. Tyler. Come on. Pullman. Go back to fantastic ever. in this movie. No, uh, it's it's uh, Tyler. He's literally look, worked on the movie. It's Bill, Bill Pullman Pull- no. over Bill Paxton. No, that's not. Acting. Tyler, that's he not. He saw his oh, face. Tyler, they literally, they literally worked on the movie. It's not Bill Paxton. Right. Stared at his face on film. They met Clint Eastwood on the set of this movie no, where he was playing no, Bill right. Paxton, no. who was no. substituted no. by Bill Pullman. No. No. But it was actually George Harrison. No. The no. What? what? Oh. Right. No. Stop this. Oh. Stop this. Uh, no, we did, we did, did actually not? meet George Harrison. What? That's <gasps> awesome. Truly, we met yeah. George Harrison. Mm-hmm. Where? He was uh, a friend of Alan Kozlowski, who was the owner of P.O.P., Great guy, passed away unfortunately just last mm-hmm. year. But uh, uh, he, we're in our little cubby hole where we're shooting, or creating our, uh, working on our workstations. And Alan opens the door and he goes, "You guys got a second? And we're like, "Yeah." And he goes, "I'd like to meet you, introduce you to George Harrison." And we're like, "Yeah, hi George." You know, oh, hi, hi George. Hi George. We didn't. Yeah, George. You know, it's dark. We're working. We say hi George, and he says, uh, "You know, what are you guys doing?" In an English accent. And we, we said, we're, we're working on our workstation. So he's looking and he's, he goes, okay, well, uh, let you guys get back to work. Oh, and he leaves. My gosh. And we're like, oh, that was cool. And then we go out for lunch and, and my wife goes, oh, did you guys know George Harrison was in the building? And I said, oh, that George Harrison. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ah. Oops. It's been yeah. a long day's night. Oh, my gosh. And I've been working like a dog. <laughs> uh, you were tired uh, and you had too much patrol. That's incredible. Yeah. We usually do plugs at the end of the episodes. Littleton brothers, is there anything that we can plug for you guys? Nothing to plug, but since this is going on social media, can I, can I just uh, read off a few credits? Uh, some, some, you know, the people who worked on the film. Absolutely. With us? A short list. Yes. Yes. A team so, effort. um, the people who, who helped us on this film, Pablo Hellman, he's great, uh, was our composite supervisor, now a fantastic visual effects supervisor at ILM. You've seen many of his films. Uh, uh, he's, he's one of their best visual effects supervisors. Our friends Jennifer German, David Crawford, Simon Haslett, Seth Lippmann, Greg Kimball, Brandon McNaughton, Kirk Cadrette, Stefan Couture, Connie Fauser, Petra Holtorf, Chris Johnson, Stefan Wild, John Rao, Scott Rader, Andrea D'Amico, Stan Samansky, Alan Kozlowski, and Jeff Ross. Those, nice. those were the people that really made this film work for, with us. Thank you, all of you, for making such an incredibly upsetting and wonderful film. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. You're very welcome. <laughs> Tyler, got some comedy sports shows coming up. Sure. Uh, Seven thirty on Saturdays. They're free. Come see us uh, via Zoom at comedysportsaustin dot com. Uh, bring the whole family. It's going to be a good time. Hey, I got to take. Is that awesome. a dolphin? That is not a 
dolphin. That that is the head head of an alien. Oh, look at you! He's Lawrence is holding up his. I can't wait. Wait, I couldn't read it. It's this jacket from Independence Day. It's a flight jacket. Oh it my says gosh! Black Knights VMFA three fourteen. Oh my goodness, that's a great patch. Oh my gosh. ID for Independence Day. This was our show jacket. That's another thing that's gone on the visual effects industry is we used to get swag and oh, not anymore. Day, that's that's long gone. This is, this is uh, how many years old? Twenty a quarter of a century. Mine got eaten by moths. A story really should have ended. That got, my jacket got eaten by moth rot. That's where I was expecting <laughs> to get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, of course, you can't find Lulu anywhere on social media. Don't even try. You can't find her. You won't even know if Lulu's even her real name. It's not a thing that you'll ever know. No, I'll never know. And you can find me on other podcasts, including uh, Shame Watch. Just look it up. Uh, available wherever you list a podcast. It, it truly was a pleasure. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. all of your work and all of these things that have kept us engaged and enraptured through the years. Those are yes. you have an amazing yes. list of credits, and I just. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a fan of you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank what you, thank you for doing the podcast with us. Thank you, thank you. And also, thanks to our listeners for listening to this episode. Please don't go go rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already, you dummies. Uh, we like doing this podcast, and hopefully, you like listening to this podcast as well. So just spread the word about it and leave us a review. We want to beat out all the rest of the other Independence Day podcasts, and you know, there's just such a glutton of them. That's wonderful. That's the end of our episode. And until next time, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Mm-hmm.